Barb Higgins here, welcoming you to A Thousand Tiny Steps. In this podcast, I share my stories of love, loss, triumphs, and tragedy as I continue to trace my steps backward and ponder what led to the death of my daughter, Molly. If you're ready to laugh, cry, shake your head in disbelief, or simply listen, and tie, buckle, slip on, or lace up your shoes, and join me as we begin our A Thousand Tiny Steps. Hey everybody, Barb Higgins here, welcoming you to episode 92 of A Thousand Tiny Steps. I have a different picture behind me. For those of you who are watching me, I have a picture behind me that I put together for our Christmas show, Concord Dance Academy's Holiday Spectacular, every December. In this picture frame behind me is a picture of Molly, a picture of Rachel, and a picture of Diane. So Molly is Molly. Rachel is Rachel Hunger, whose kidney now lives inside of Kenny, Molly's dad. And Diane is Mrs. Peterson. And Mrs. Peterson was a backstage helper, big time backstage helper at CDA forever. She helped Miss Cindy in huge ways, getting groups organized. She always had extras, safety pins, bobby pins, little pieces to throw together to make a missing costume piece. She was just one of those amazing people that, that did everything you could imagine, everything that you couldn't imagine. And all three of these people were a significant piece of Molly B. the Musical, which I'm recording this May 22nd, which is the day before Molly B. The Musical, seven-year anniversary. And so it's on, my, it's on my head a lot. All of these girls, women, were a big piece of that. Obviously, it was for Molly. Rachel performed in the opening number, and Mrs. Peterson was backstage organizing everybody, just like she always did. Two of the three in this picture, Molly and Mrs. Peterson, died from brain tumors. Rachel died from anaphylaxis after eating peanuts. So... I have them behind me sort of as, a, as an homage to them, as a way of just sort of remembering them. It's just in my heart right now as I record, even though you'll be hearing this in June. So June, yay, the wonderful month of June. It's become one of my favorite months because it's just a quiet month in terms of anniversaries and things like this around, around Molly. So it's seven years. We're entering year eight now. This is the eighth month of May that Molly hasn't been around. It'll be the 8th June, then the 8th July. That's mind-boggling to me. I've said this before, and any, anyone that's experienced profound trauma or grief will understand what I mean when I say that before and after takes on a whole new meaning. We quantify time, the Gregorian calendar, before Christ and after Christ. The years leading up to and then from are all around the birth of Jesus. And so we attach time to lots of things. It's human nature. And once you've lost a child, or at least for me, there's before Molly and after Molly. And my entire life took a almost U-turn on May 2nd, 2016. So eight years seems impossible. It seems a marathon of time and it seems an instant all at the same time. But what it's like to be a mom, what it's like to be me seven years later is sort of as follows. In typical Barb fashion, I get up every day with 9,000 things to do and no clear plan on how they'll get done. I spend as much time organizing a schedule and putting it together and really thinking it will work is I do rescheduling everything because I've forgotten 50 things when I was organizing the schedule. I remember when I was married to Eric, so this is, you know, 1993-ish, I would spend every evening two or three hours pouring over my cross-country team's workouts of the day. I'd reorganize it into a notebook. I'd write down all their split times. I just learned so much by organizing this information about them as runners. But it took all of our evenings. He really wanted me to be the one that cooked dinner. I'd never cooked myself dinner. I ate lunch three meals a day. <laughs> and so that was a contentious part of our marriage because he just thought that he worked hard all day. He should come home and I should cook for him. <laughs> well, I worked hard all day too. So how is that fair? 
we bartered it. I did laundry and he cooked. My point here is that I'm not much different. I find ways to fill my time pondering things that aren't difficult to ponder so that my mind doesn't have to go to the tricky places that bring up a lot of pain. So one of the hard things for me is Facebook memories. I mean, sometimes they're wonderful, but of course, they're mostly now full of all things dead Molly. Remembering things about her when she was alive, remembering something that happened in honor of her, remembering dances and get-togethers and theater and all these things before and after. So these are tricky memories. They're not bad because they involve Molly, but they're not good either because she's not here. And so life becomes this constant back and forth, this constant dichotomy of happy and sad, of dark and light, of before and after. And it's difficult. It's an impossible way to live and there's no way for me to change it. There are so many people, however, who would take that statement right there and tell me that I was wrong, that if I wanted to change, I could. That's really hard. It's very, very hard for me to hear those sorts of things. I was looking through some comments today. It's, you know, Facebook memories. And it was a panic-stricken post I did, you know, 2016 on this day about how I was just freaking out. I'm busy, busy, and my mind was going crazy, and I was a mess. I was just, I was just having a bad time. The comments on there, most of them were just supportive and wonderful and loving, but there were two or three people that put, Molly wouldn't want you to be unhappy. That's probably one of the hardest comments for me to take because nobody knows what Molly would want. And all that tells me is I'm failing her yet again as a mother because I'm not happy and that's what she'd want. But people say those things and I know they mean well by them. Some of the other comments, you know, this too shall pass. <laughs> no, no. There was actually a comment and this is where Facebook can be really, really tricky sometimes. So Roy commented a lot at those times. And in my, in my time hop, I had screenshotted the comments and there was a comment from him that said, oh honey, this pains me. So today when the memory came up, I went through and looked at all the comments and that comment's gone now. So I know that he's blocked me on Facebook, but I still see comments, old comments that were made before the blocking. They don't disappear. So I wonder how that happens, how that comment is gone. Was he able to go in and remove it? If we're not friends, then it wouldn't be on his page either. I don't know. It's just interesting. I don't know, but it's gone. And I've noticed that with several other comments that he has made on things over the years, that when I go and look at the memory now, the comments are gone. And I think how, how interesting it is that, that his way of dealing with history is to erase it. And then I look at our current political climate with the rewriting of fiction and the rewriting of history books. And, and rather than framing what happened, we change or erase what happened. It's interesting. It's a parallel thread for me. These are the things I think about in my seven years in mind. We're still involved in a lot of things that Molly was involved in. I remember shortly after she died, I didn't want anything to change. And a lot of that panic around having a baby was, I think, stemmed a bit from me not being ready to be a mother of a 10th grader and not having the eighth grader two years behind her. You leave elementary school to go to middle school. And when you have an elementary school student, you still feel like you have forever to raise them. And then three years later, they're in high school and you're thinking that three years later is college. Like it's a really quick sort of turnaround middle school. And so when Molly was in seventh grade, her graduation from high school was still eons away. I wasn't even thinking about it. You know, I was looking ahead at five full years of Gracie and Molly, and then, then they'd both be graduated and off to doing whatever it was they were going to do. And then Molly died. And suddenly what I had was Gracie and three years left. And, and I remember feeling like I wasn't ready for that and just having this utter panic. And I had a lot of mothering panics. I was supposed to be a mother. I'm a mother. I have to stay being a mother. These were utterly guttural 
nothing cognitive or logical about it. Feelings of panic and fear, utter chaos inside of my head at that time. When I look through a lot of the memories, these things come back to me, these other pieces that, that I walked around with holding onto them inside of me for a long time. So the Molly B Foundation, which is a way that I can remember Molly without tiring people, <laughs> making people not want to listen to me or talk to me. <laughs> I can talk about Molly all I want because it's the foundation supports and promotes experiences for children that Molly loved. And so the Molly B Foundation does high school scholarships, does a middle school award and an elementary school award. We offer one scholarship per show every summer for RB Productions. We provide all the t-shirts for RB Productions. We provide a scholarship and t-shirts for the Children's Theater Project. These were theater companies that Molly loved. We do the t-shirts for CAST and PEG, the school district related theater programs. I can't imagine Molly not being a part of these things. I do have to say now that she would have been graduated, it is a bit easier when all of her friends were still on stage and performing, having her name on the shirt was a much bigger sort of necessity than it is now. Now it's sort of a pat on the back. It's a hug. It's a comfort. It's a whisper in my ear that says, hi, mama, I'm still here. So that's a bit different, but we still do it. And some of these experiences are wonderful. I've had some amazing conversations with people about Molly through offering scholarships and t-shirts and such. A couple of weeks back in the middle of May, Gracie and I went to see Greece, which was the Concord High School musical. And it was awesome. Gracie and I try to go together every year. I've gone to a couple by myself, but typically we go together. And we were sitting next to a woman who had her daughter on her lap. And she had come the night before with her older daughter. And the younger daughter just had her undies in a bundle. It was just mad that she couldn't go to. And so we sat next to one another and we listened to them chit chat about the play. It was Greece and everything that was going on. It was amazing. And when the play was over, she kept apologizing for her daughter being chatty, but Gracie and I got a big kick out of it. We loved it. And so she asked, who was I watching? And Gracie and I showed her the back of the program, which had a big hashtag heart Molly B on it. And I said, we're Molly's mother and sister. The little girl says, who's Molly? And I said, well, Molly's my daughter. And so the conversation was all around the little girl wanting to know, was Molly in the play? And I said, no, Molly's in heaven. Why? And so we explained Molly's brain tumor. And we explained that, you know, Molly loved theater, never got to come to high school. And the girl just asked and asked and asked. Every question was another question, which, which Gracie and I loved. We're having a nice, healthy conversation about Molly with a little girl who has no idea that somebody might think it rude to ask these questions. The mother kept trying to interfere and apologize or intervene is a better word. And we just know we love this. This is wonderful. So we got to have this wonderful conversation about Molly. And the older sister is doing a play with RB this summer. And so we said to her, well, her play will have hashtag heart Molly B on it. Molly's name will be on her t-shirt. So it was just this amazing conversation. And these are, these are sort of the better ways that we deal with the foundation piece. We did another fund drive, fundraiser for savers where we collect clothing. And this was our biggest one, almost 5,000 pounds worth of clothing, household items, and books. So what's significant about this? Two things. The first and most significant is that that's 5,000 pounds of items that won't be in a landfill or floating in the ocean or unused. Everything that goes to savers is either used or recycled, which is wonderful. It's like sort of how it should be when you look at how we use things in the world. The other piece of it was that's almost 5,000 pounds <laughs> that I put on a truck and took off a truck. <laughs> Yes. So 900 pounds of household items. So a thousand pounds, half a ton of household items in boxes. I picked them up off the garage floor, put them on a truck, took them off the truck, handed them to the people at Savers. 1200 pounds of books. <laughs> That's 1200 pounds. I took off the garage floor, hoisted up onto a truck and took off the truck. 
And then another 2,200 pounds of clothing. I'm flexing now. You can't see those of you that can see me. <laughs> that was two days of really, really good working out. And one of my big concerns now having Jack is that I'm old and I don't want to get sick or feeble or weak until he's grown up enough to understand sort of the nature of nature, right? And so I'm going to be 60 this summer. And I moved 5,000 pounds of stuff off my garage floor onto a truck, off the truck, onto a loading dock. I feel pretty good about that. My mom is an incredibly fit person, or she was, and she couldn't have done this at age 60, probably not at age 40. So that was a pretty significant two days for me. The hard part is, you know, Kenny and I sort of do this by ourselves, and I do the majority of it. When I say we're having another fun drive collection, they get upset. Oh no, because it makes a mess of the garage. But when I'm emptying one bag into another, when I'm sorting through clothes, when I'm tying shoes together by the laces, when I'm filling bags with things, when I'm loading and unloading a truck, it's that distraction. I'm doing it for Molly. I'm doing it so that, so that her name is out there, so that Molly B is on every receipt that goes back and forth between me and Sabres. That when they say, what's your charity? I say the Molly B Foundation. It's a way for me to continue her, to keep her here. And the other piece of that is it's the thing that would have mattered a lot to Molly. Molly didn't like people to want for things. She didn't want people to suffer. Didn't like the idea of sea animals dying because of garbage in the ocean. All of these things would matter to Molly. What's it like managing a foundation year after year after year? Well, it becomes a bit more tedious and tiring. I have to be honest. I feel sometimes like I have to fight harder for people to remember. I got very tired and a bit angry in May. I've talked about this as well in a couple of other podcasts and a couple of lives, just with a lack of support from my family. And so I didn't do Molly B Monday, which really that the sad thing is, is I didn't do it, but nobody noticed maybe one or two people in my life asked about Molly B Monday, nobody else. So if nobody remembers, why am I doing it? And of course, that's the whole point of doing it because people will forget her. So I don't know. I, that saddens me. You know, I still haven't heard from my family. <laughs> it's almost June. And I don't know if, if by June I will have heard yet, but I don't think so. And so these are things that as grief goes along, that goes along too. We have awards coming up. June is awards month. That is a nice sort of piece of June. So we do a Spirit of Molly B Award at Runlet Middle School and at Krista McAuliffe Elementary. And that's always fun. The conversations with the teachers and the principals, picking the right person. This is a piece, a piece of Molly's story that I like. And the nice part about this, and we do a, a scholarship at the high school, is that all three of those schools reached out to me before I reached out to them to say, hey, it's getting to be that time of year. Where are we at with the Molly B stuff? So that made me happy because somebody else remembered her. And that always goes a long way in the life of a grieving parent. Other June things that happen, regardless of whether I want them to or not, is the Concord Dance Academy dance recital. So this year, of course, there's a bands off back on stage. There's only been one year with no bands off, and that was last year. Gracie was at Disney. And so there was no bands off name on the back of the Concord Dance Academy shirt. But there is this year, Jack Banzoff right up there, top left. And he'll be tap dancing. And Gracie and I will be room moms helping out in Governor's Hall, which is underneath the stage there. All of the dancing kids getting ready to do their shows, their little dances. And this is another piece. You know, I talk about how unready I was to not be a mom for a lot of years when Molly died and how that pervasive dream and that utter drive to have a baby, the piece of it that's attached to grief was driven around the fear of not being a mother. And so wanting to keep things the same. I go to Concord Dance Academy. That was such a huge part of our life. After Molly's death, I couldn't imagine not having it in our lives. Now that Gracie's been gone and we've, you know, we've weaned away a little bit, it's different. I go back now and nothing is the same. I mean, the rooms look the same. 
but you know, COVID really changed a lot of things. And, and sometimes I feel like as busy as it is, it's still awesome and wonderful. It's a different reality. There's only one recital now instead of two. There are still tons of kids there, but, but it seems much quieter. The common areas aren't quite so hectic and busy. Now I go at a time that Jack has his dancing, maybe, maybe comp nights, it's much more hectic and busy. I know that Gracie and Molly just lived there. They did their homework there. They ate dinner there sometimes. So part of me can't wait for Jack to have that experience. And even as I say it now, I get this nervous tummy, like I'm trying to recreate something that I can never have back. And maybe both of those things are true. Again, always the human mind tries to make sense of what's happening. Always little children in throes of abuse or trauma, just try to make sense of what's happening to them and, and organize it and categorize it so that they're okay. And I think that we do the same thing as adults. Is it wrong for me to, in, to put Jack into dance? No, I don't think so. Watching him dance, he loves it. He loves everything about it. He can't wait to go. He loves his costumes. He likes showing Miss Hillary that he can do the steps. When music comes on, he dances. And also Miss Hillary and Celeste in the office and Miss Paige and, and Miss Cindy, you know, watching little, little Jack dance and remembering you know, 20 years ago, was little Gracie at that same age, you know, <laughs> doing her little tap steps in her little outfits. And Cindy and I talk about time and the passage of time and how quickly it goes and how hard that is. And I wonder about Concord Dance Academy. I can't imagine it not being a part of my life. Cindy was too integral, a piece of support for me when I lost my job, when I went through all the crazy Roy stuff and all of the newspaper and the restraining orders and all of the things that happened to me. She stood by my side again and again. She paid for me to get my hair done a couple of times. She just, you know, weeks and weeks, months and months would go by when I couldn't make payments. And she was patient with me and kind and loving. And, you know, one of the things the Molly B Foundation does is provide dance lessons for students. So rather than just, you know, offer like minimal financial aid, we choose two or three students and we pay for everything. And that's how it should be, I think. And so we try to find families that would never be able to have their kids dance or would never be able to afford comp, or maybe they've come across a tragedy themselves, a home loss, a job loss, a divorce. So it makes my heart happy to know that somebody else will be happy because they can dance. So these are the realities of how do you find the balance between moving along in your life and never forgetting your child and all that she stood for and all that she did. The IVF journey. So the piece of that in the last seven years, you know, the first two and a half years, just so devastated by all the losses, the loss of everything I knew, the loss of Roy, the loss of all the things that I did with Roy, the loss of VLAX, the loss of anything predictable in my life lost. And then two of those two and a half years, just utterly decimated with manipulative drug abuse and drug use. It was horrifying. I don't know if I'll ever be ready to talk about that, those two years in terms of that. It's probably a story that should be told because I know I'm not alone in this, but the further away I get from those experiences, the more horrified I feel sometimes. So then the IVF process began and all that goes along with that and all of the, the press coverage. And so how does that marry into moving along without Molly? So now Jack is starting to enter into the activities that she did and there's those connections and, and he makes those connections. The number of times he'll talk about Molly when we're at Concord Dance Academy is too numerous to count. He gets it, he feels it, and he knows it. And so now he's taking part in the things that she did. I think it will really hit home for me the first weekend in June <laughs> when the recital happens. Actually, it will have just happened by the time you're hearing this. He has this little tuxedo with a yellow bow tie. It's beautiful. 
we continue to do those things. The press coverage around his birth has also been a big piece of my journey. The thing about the internet, the interwebs and YouTube and posting things and blogs and podcasts is that people can comment. And I'm amazed sometimes at the things that people think it's okay to say. You know, I have lots and lots of times I read words and I think, how do we get here? How do we get to this place as a humanity that we think it's okay to say these things? And I go back to quite honestly, when AOL instant messenger first came out, instant messenger, kids could like talk to each other via their computer while they were online. And they would be like, they'd bomb home and they'd, I'll be online in half an hour. And I think to myself, just talk on the phone, but, it, but I get it now. You can be online with 10 different people at the same time. And an instant messenger was a way to share information and all this. You had your little away messages and, and all these different things. And I remember explaining to kids when they would post pictures of things, you know, like a group of kids were at Memorial Field once and they stacked up all the picnic tables in a pyramid and they had all these alcohol bottles on it. And they took all these pictures and they're posting it on people's instant messengers. Well, other people can see that. And so I remember saying, you know, I can see all this. And while I realize where it's coming from, somebody might call the police on a picture like this, you know, and then instantly the pictures are taken off. But that whole difference of you think you're doing something privately because you're doing it on your computer in your bedroom, but where you're putting it is in everybody's bedrooms on their computer screens. It's that, that juxtaposition of private and public. And so I look at some of the comments and I'm blown away a bit by how audacious some of them are and not the good kind of audacious. The number one comment I get around having Jack is people are utterly insistent that the public is owed all the details of my IVF journey, meaning frozen embryo, embryo adoption, my egg, my sperm, someone else's egg, someone else's sperm, frozen, live, donor egg, my egg. There's so many possibilities in the world of IVF and so many decisions to make and so many things that the body dictates and so many medical procedures being created in, in the testing phase. There's too much to share. And I feel a bit insulted, quite honestly, maybe that's a strong word, but you know, if I were in the hospital and I'd been sick and I said, well, I had to have surgery, people might say, what did you have for surgery? But if I said, I'd rather not share that, nobody would be offended by that. You know, it's my business. It's my body. It's my surgery. The number one criticism I get for how I share my story of Jack is that I don't share his biology, his DNA. Is he mine? Well, I grew him in my body and pushed him out of my hoo-ha. So I think that makes him mine, but that's not enough for a lot of people. They want to know, they want to know every dirty detail there is to know as if the DNA of the baby would make it less or more miraculous that I was able to get pregnant, grow the baby, deliver the baby, and two years later, still breastfeed the baby. What does the baby's DNA matter? And I don't share Jack's. There's too much at stake here. But my biggest issue is it's his DNA. It's not my story to tell. I've told the parts that have to do with me. The parts that have to do with Jack and potentially anyone else involved, doctors, nurses, technicians, you know, receptionists, all the people involved in our whole IVF journey, all the testing we had done, the results of the test that we had done, decisions made based on those results. All of those things are very, very, to me, private medical information that is nobody's business. And I'll get feedback for this. And you know what? That's fine. My feeling is it's much bigger a reflection of the person demanding, I be honest, quote unquote, honest. It's their issue, not mine. It's none of my business why they want to know, but I don't have to tell them. That's an interesting piece to me. Another piece that's similar, very different topic, but similar is one of the podcasts I did on abuse. I got a lot of feedback about why didn't I name my abuser? Well, 
abuse within a family is, is tricky. <laughs> and there was never a criminal investigation and all that sort of stuff. So I left that vague. And so I was criticized. If you, you're not really being painfully honest, if you don't name your abuser, okay, I described my sexual abuse. I think that's pretty painfully honest. <laughs> but again, people have different ideas and different expectations. And I'm not at all here passing judgment on these criticisms. It's actually one of the things I like most about podcasting is I can talk uninterrupted here in my very messy office and people can listen and come to their own conclusions and they can reach out and share how they feel about things. But I will kindly say that I'm as honest as I can be and nothing I keep secret is to benefit me or protect me. If there's something I'm not overtly clear about, it's because it's not my place to say it. It's not my story to tell. And that to me is a very important piece of doing a podcast like mine. I'm telling some pretty terrible stories. There's so much in, in my Amy and Roy life that I could tell that I didn't because I, I have yet to lay my hands on a way to prove that what I'm saying is true. I can't say anything on this podcast that I can't prove. Otherwise, I'm just being libelous or slandering somebody. And that's not my idea at all. So all of these things are my grief journey, you know, since, since Molly's death, I've taken all these steps in growth. And now in year seven, entering year eight, you know, I'm still alive. I'm still here. The next thing that I'll talk about that's been a huge piece of my life since Molly is writing the book. I've spoken about this quite a bit, but we're in the final process now. So a couple of weeks back, a month or so by the time this comes out, I went to a book signing, an author named Warren Zanes. We went to high school together. And he wrote a book about Bruce Springsteen's recording of the album, Nebraska. And I'll just leave it at that. If you're not a Springsteen fan, none of this will matter. If you are, you know what I'm talking about. And I just, what I loved most about it was I really paid attention to what he was doing, what he talked about, how he chose to share, questions he answered, all those sorts of things. And there were maybe 50 people in attendance. I hope I have 50 people come because <laughs> I'm going to do the same thing. I'll have a book launch at the end of July. This is me telling my story around losing Molly with the unbelievable help of Virginia McGregor. She was my ghostwriter, and we've worked on the editing process together. It's been fantastic. In the process of writing and editing and re-editing and re-editing, we had to cut maybe 70 pages because we couldn't talk about the lawsuit. Anything to do with medical malpractice, anything that sounds like I'm upset with the doctors and nurses and hospitals and ERs and such can't be in there. They could make it so I couldn't publish the book. They could take all the money back, whatever. And so... It was a painful process, but an unbelievably healthy process. I learned so much in the editing of this book. I'm learning more now. We've chosen a cover. It's a beautiful cover. We have a title. It will be called Motherland, which I love because so much of mothering is a country in and of itself. And so Motherland it is. And we dedicate the book to grieving mothers. And one of the conversations we had just today, Virginia and myself, was do we include the IVF moms and, you know, in our, in our who is this for? And I thought, no. It's clear in the title that it's about child loss and becoming a mother again in my 50s. Anyone who reads the book, whether they read it for their dead child or the IVF experience they're currently in or have been in or want to go in, will understand where they fit in the definition of grieving mother. I know from talking now to women, all women, all different aspects of childbirth and everything else, motherhood, loss, miscarriage, abortion, can't get pregnant, can't maintain a pregnancy, stillbirth, you know, all of these things. They're all grieving mothers. They're grieving the baby they'll never have. They're grieving the baby they lost. They're grieving the baby that they almost had. You know, they're grieving the baby that they raised for 20 years or 10 years or 13 years or 50 years. Grieving mothers are grieving mothers. And the losses we grieve might be different, but the gut-wrenching, the gut-wrenching reality of it is the same. 
And for me, this process has been phenomenal in terms of coming to terms with Molly's death. It has also made me really, really very, very committed to finding a way to tell her story. The more pushback I get about telling it lets me know that there's a lot more than I know in those medical files and records that happened to her. Because if it were, if it were really just about the money, that would be one thing. But the vitriol with which the opposing attorneys <laughs> complain about my being vocal about Molly is, is strong, very, very strong. So that's me, you know, seven years in, I'm still working out all the time. I talked about CrossFit and the Memorial Day Murph last week's episode. Part of surviving without Molly has been, we avoid places that we went with Molly because she's so obviously missing. And I just read an article about someone who they go to the same places. Actually, it's a woman I'm going to have on as a podcast guest. She talks about revisiting the places that she went with her son because that's how they honor his, their memories they have of him there. For us, it was completely opposite. We haven't gone back to the Jersey Shore. We haven't been up north to Whale's Tail or to Clark's Train Bears. These are all things that Jack will want to do someday. And we haven't done any of those things because they're too painful because the last time we were there, Molly was there. It's, it's walking that line. So one thing that has stayed the same for me is CrossFit. And I think it's because shortly after Molly died, I've talked about this, John Farwell took such a huge interest in making sure Gracie was okay. CrossFit became a piece of a staple of what made me okay. So that stayed the same. And here we are now with Jack getting older, two, two and a half now, getting bigger and bigger. Where will he go to school? Will he go to the same schools that they went to? Like all of these things now come into play. And suddenly we're revisiting all these places that we last visited with Gracie and Molly. I don't know how that will go. I'm not sure how that will feel. I'm not sure what I'll get from that. I do know that the foundation piece and honoring Molly by helping others that loved the things that she loved is something that will probably continue for as long as I'm alive. And hopefully beyond that, I have a lot to learn around running a foundation. I do know that I do the same things that I've done forever in terms of sort of preventing myself from succeeding. Molly's death didn't change any of that. I waste a large amount of time running from thing to thing, not spending enough time on what I claim is really important to me. And I've had to reschedule my week already and it's Monday. I'm recording this episode now at a time I was supposed to be interviewing a potential podcast guest. I can't fit them all in. And some of it's my issues and some of it's, you know what? All of it's me. <laughs> it's just me. I have to own this. I'm the only one that can change it. So I wrap up this episode, you know, always hoping I'm not boring you, but also trying to give you a sense of the day-to-day -day things, what life is like. You know, I remember Mrs. Ludi having a hard time when she woke up and didn't think of Phyllis Ann the moment she woke up. And I wake up a lot now and I don't think of Molly first thing. It's usually second or third thing. And I always think about her before I leave the bedroom because I don't have to be awake long to think about her. But I do know that it's different. I still wake up thinking all the time about a lot of the things that I lost along with Molly. I have a very hard time pulling myself out of the past sometimes. And a lot of that is just processing. I spent two years obliterated, wasted, high as a kite, and didn't pay attention at all to processing so much of my grief. And I'm doing it now. And someday I'll talk about those things. <laughs> I think listenership will go way up on that season. But I get up every day. You know, I bathe more frequently now than I did the first year she was gone. Although not as much as I did before she died. <laughs> I will say I have a hard time in the shower. I just, it's just a place that she stood. I still have a hard time in that bathroom. I eat well. I still work out. And I'm very now committed again. I can get back into working hard and competing. And I'm excited about that. I have some big goals around competing in CrossFit competitions. The life of Barbara Higgins in many ways doesn't look too different than it looked in 2015. 
you know, I have two or three different jobs. I work out a lot. I run from thing to thing. I'm too busy to be productive. My house is often cluttery. All of these things are the same, but I do them now without Molly and I do them with an adult daughter and <laughs> my same irritating mother. I love my mother and Kenny and I were talking about her today a bit and, you know, we could reconjure these identical conversations 30 years ago. <laughs> so the more things change, the more they stay the same. So if you're a grieving person or a person that suffers from any sort of mental illness that makes you feel lost or hopeless or confused or sad or paralyzed, if you're oppressed or feeling smothered, if you don't know what to do sometimes, take a big breath and just say, I love yourself. <laughs> because all of us feel that way. No matter what pretty things we post on Facebook, you know, no matter what scantily clad perfect butts <laughs> I see on Facebook, I know that the owner of those butts can feel pretty sad sometimes as well. I'm looking forward to the next several episodes where I'll have some guests, where I'll talk about more current things in my life, where I'll talk about things I'm doing, books I'm reading, things I'm experiencing. I'm excited about it. I still haven't really wrapped my head around how to do it and what direction to go, but I'm excited about it. So anyway, as always, be good to yourself. After you're good to yourself, be good to someone else. And for the 9 millionth time, have a good day, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening and for supporting the podcast. Feel free to leave a review and to share my stories with your friends. Please reach out with your own stories. I love connecting with my listeners. If you want to see what I'm up to next, you can find me on Instagram at Barb underscore 444, on Facebook as Barb Higgins, and at my website, a thousandtinysteps.com. And while you're there, sign up for my newsletter, a weekly way to find out what's up in the life of Barb Higgins.